Today we're joined by Jared Christensen, CEO of Audience Republic, an Australian startup which has built a marketing platform and fan management CRM tool for promoters and music festivals. Started in 2016, Audience Republic has not only survived the pandemic, but has grown into a valuation of 51 million. The attraction is impressive, and today we're going to explore with Jared how he how he's building it all. Jared, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Welcome, Jared. So nice to have you on the podcast. I know. It's great to be here. I've uh, watched a few episodes and, uh, yeah, excited. It's Fav- about What's your favourite episode? <laughs> uh, look, I definitely loved the one with uh, Michael Chug. I, th- I thought there was some great uh, great insights on that one. So the one I really with that. Chuggy or the one with um, Susan and Chuggy together? Both together. Yeah, Susan yeah, and so Chuggy. Good. That was great. Yeah, was really good. good. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Why did you start Audience Republic? Yeah, well, it all started with me. Um, I was probably 18 or 19 at the time, and I was uh, effectively running this business, promoting music events. And uh, this is back in 2000, yeah, 2009. And uh, the first artist I booked uh, was an artist called the Bloody Beetroots, and nobody had really heard of them at the time. And uh, they were a very small artist, but just out of pure luck, after I booked them, uh, they completely blew up and became super popular. Completely sold out after after two weeks, um, and uh, as an eighteen or nineteen year old, I thought this is easy. Um, all I need to do is just do ten of these events every year, or make a million dollars a year. Um, I'll do this until I'm twenty two, twenty three, and then I can retire. I'm I'm I'm, I'm done. So <laughs> I rushed to book in all these other artists, and uh, the second artist I booked was an artist called Mastercraft from Canada. They had the song with John Legend, and I just thought they're amazing. And uh, long story short, lost a ton of money on that second one, at least for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was really where I had the learnings though around just how difficult it is to actually sell tickets. But anyway, did about 25 events over the space of three years. Some did really well, some did terrible. And uh, originally looked into starting a ticketing platform because I thought, how hard can that be? They're making all this money, they're not taking any risk. Um, looked into that decided that is a terrible business uh, and uh, you know there's a lot of great players in that space and rather than actually helping process the payment and transaction, the really difficult part is how do you actually get people to buy tickets in the first place? And so that's where Audience Republic comes in. We are an all-in-one CRM and marketing platform and we're all about helping event promoters and that includes yeah, music festivals, concert tours, artists to help them sell more tickets and we work with all the existing ticketing platforms out there. So that's that's where it came from. It's pretty amazing to look at your story because I you did write this op-ed and you put it on Medium and it was you know how you were how you lost twenty k and you're standing there at that Mastercraft gig going how did I get here yes. to now like your clients are pretty high level like I who are your clients I know that you work with Alton John who's actually in the country right now on tour like who are your clients Yeah so uh, Frontier Touring is a great client and I believe that that would have been. Um, uh, the Elton John, um, also TG, um, as well as Ticket Tech have been a great client with us. Untitled Group uh, in North America as well. Live Nation, Avant Gardner, Ambassador Theatre Group, Wakan Music Festival, Disco Donny. Um, and uh, yeah, roughly about 50% of our clients are based in North America. About 35% are based in Australia, New Zealand, and, and the rest in you know, the UK and Europe. Also got um, starting to get festivals and, and promoters in uh, the Middle East as well. So uh, signed a festival called MDL Beast in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, 400,000 attendees. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's very much a global business for sure. That's huge. I mean, where are your staff? Where are your offices? Uh, all over. Look, we had an office in Sydney, had an office in LA and one in London pre-pandemic. 
Uh, of course, nobody was really using offices during the pandemic, so we got rid of those, and we're all remote now. Um, so a lot of a lot of our team are based in Australia, but we've got a team in North America. Uh, we've also got people in Europe as well, so Amsterdam and uh, uh, the UK as well. So pretty distributed. Is it an advantage now to have most of your team in Australia, considering how uh, bad the Australian dollar is performing? Uh, well, look, it's it's great if uh, you know your customers, fifty percent of them are based in North America. That really helps. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, look, team members. Uh, in comparison to hiring in, in North America, for example, yeah, it's definitely a lot more cost-effective here in, in, in comparison to the US. So definitely an advantage for sure. And going back again, like how did you build out your team and uh, I guess the financial backers of your team? You know, how, What did building the company actually look like back then? Yeah, well, um, look, we've raised $10 million in capital in total, but it wasn't like that from the very start. Uh, investors hate music. Um, if you're fintech, or maybe not so much fintech anymore, investors don't like fintech uh, right now either. But um, but uh, yeah, as a music business, uh, investors don't particularly like investing in music. It's typically a very tough uh, space. Uh, but look, we have very strong metrics and a very strong growth rate. And uh, really, it just came down to getting some core backers to start off with, raised our first $500,000, mostly from angel investors, um, who are you know, technology focused as well as Artesian Capital, one of the larger VC funds in Australia. Um, and that was our first round. It was a really tough round to, to raise. I think I met with 100 investors um, and ended up uh, getting, I think, about 15 investors in total. So it was a really tough uh, round. No product, really, uh, not a real product anyway, uh, and uh, no revenue really at all uh, for that first round. So it was a really tough thing. Fast forward to today, we've raised $10 million in, in total. Um, our investors are um, Artesian Capital. We have 1013 who invested in uh, Linktree and, and Mr. Yum, Stormbreaker Ventures, Ice House Ventures, and uh, a great group of uh, angels on top of that as well. You, you mentioned that, can I just say 15% conversion rate on raising capital, 100, meet 100 people, Close fifteen of them. That's that doesn't sound too. That's pretty good. Not too bad, yeah. And but so, the legwork would have been hard. <laughs> it yeah. would have hard work. Yeah. But if you think about it, fifteen percent. That's all right. Um, if you when you were raised, did you have a technical co-founder at that time in that first raise? So first raise, absolutely, yeah. Prior to that, you know, it was, it was me for about you know um, the first six months. I was using a contractor to build the product. I had some guy in Guatemala uh, who did a great job, built the first product for five hundred dollars just to prove out the concept. Didn't work super well but it did enough to at least deliver value and uh then yeah had uh, uh jason mcluelich join who's our cto and co-founder and he's just an incredibly uh, talented technical uh, co-founder and he's done an incredible job building such a large product uh with uh, a pretty small team and so what was the how do you raise money with a 500 dollars app i imagine what was that a plug-in <laughs> like well how do you how do you do that yeah our first product was it was, um, if I just remember back to what it was, I have to remember now. So it was the idea, uh, we knew that we always wanted to build an all-in-one CRM and marketing platform. What we knew though is you can't build that on $500 mm. um, and you definitely can't buy that, uh, build that either on even half a million dollars. It takes millions and millions and millions of dollars to build. So really what we did is we built the smallest possible feature we could that would deliver the maximum value um, and so really what it was to start off with was making best use of uh, first release, second release, third release discounted tickets. If you wanted to unlock a discount, you had to do a couple of things first. That was the initial idea. Um, and then eventually uh, built our gamified campaigns platform, which is all about 
pre-sale registration, competitions, waitlists, and it's really about generating word of mouth and, and building audiences. And, and that was our second product. So that's where we started. And the focus was just generating revenue from that, proving out the concept, um, and then showing to the investors that there's a real problem here. And what you just described was the $500 product? Uh, the $500 product was, yeah, unlock uh, a discount by sharing on Facebook and maybe subscribing to the email list. That so was you the built that product. thing for $500. Who were your, did you get a first client or were you just proving the technology? Yeah. So uh, one of the first uh, two clients that we had actually uh, was at least substantial clients was Rhythm and Vines in New Zealand. Um, and uh, Stereosonic actually was uh, the second one. Unfortunately, they didn't end up proceeding because uh, of what happened, I think, shortly after that, and uh, they didn't actually end up doing the event after we uh, were planning on working with them, but those were the first Remind two. Remind me of what happened with Stereo? Uh, Stereosonic, I think, stopped, with the acquisition, I think they stopped, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, stopped yeah. Stereosonic mm-hmm. uh, back then, so we didn't end up working with them, but, um, uh, you know, it was great to sign them just as a proof point, but Rhythm and Vines... Uh, that was another one, and they've been using it ever since. All right, so I, I just want to break down those early moments. So you spent $500, you built this like MVP product, you managed to sign two clients with it. I imagine just yourself hustling, getting into getting meetings and just going, hey, do you want to use this tool? I'll charge you 100 bucks for it or whatever That's you're it. charging. Um, you then took that those two early case studies, that product, and then you went out and raised some money you did those hundred meetings then and you were like hey give, give me funding i want to build That's out it. this product there are a properly. few more smaller customers but yeah those are the most substantial i, I we probably had back then maybe ten thousand dollars in revenue or something like that so um yeah very small amount of revenue uh, but could show there was a real problem there and uh also the fact that uh, you know people were willing to pay for it i think that is super inspiring because the amount of people that pitch me ideas for investment that are just like, hey, I've got this idea. I just need to raise money so I can hire a developer. And it's like, that's not, I'm not going to fucking give you money until you, you know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? Everyone's got ideas. Like you actually. Proof of concept, please. You actually fucking worked out a way to prove your concept out 500 bucks. Now, I'm sure if if your idea, I'm sure if your idea, you could have, the idea in your head probably would have cost you a couple million dollars, but you were like, okay, what is the, $500 $500 version of my idea. Yes, like yeah. A- what is the smallest version that's going to deliver the most value? Then we use that cash that we generated through that because we're, you know, we've raised $10 million. We haven't raised $100 million, right? Which, mm-hmm. you know, this product, we're competing against platforms who have. Um, and so really we use that cash to then invest in building a more comprehensive product. And who? who are, oh, you are, you, we're probably going to ask the same question. Who Go. are your competitors? Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, look, to be honest, you know, our biggest competitors really don't come from, you know, competitors focused on our industry. It's really more Facebook, Instagram really is where we look at. We look at our market. They're so dependent on Facebook, Instagram, and other paid channels for their ticket sales. These platforms will eventually disappear. We don't know when. It could be soon. It could be later. Um, and so... Uh, they are so dependent on these platforms and so getting them off these platforms at least to a degree and sending some of that budget to actually owning their audience and not being so dependent on these third-party platforms so really we look at facebook and instagram that's generally where a a large chunk of their budget comes from Um, and uh, just diverting a little bit of that so they own their audience and they don't have to be so dependent on these uh, social platforms you do have CRM competitors, though, in other categories. So you've got the broader ones like HubSpot and Salesforce and these kind of things, um, really bigger 
cross-industry expensive tools. And then you've got the more niche CRM. So you, Mr. Yum, you mentioned, they just bought a CRM company and now they've got this hyper-specialized CRM tool for restaurants. Um, so where do you see... Where do you see potential the potential battlefield going? Do you think, um, do you think all these CRM tools? So Mr. Yum's got theirs for restaurants, and do you think they'll eventually start to build out tools and services like Audience Republic have, and then mm. you'll also do the same to what they've got, and then that'll be a new battlefield? Or mm. do you think people are just going to own their own space? Like- so yeah, the way um, I see SaaS going, which is where we where we play software as a service. Uh, you know, originally, really, there was a, a company around every feature and they were very horizontal specific. So they didn't focus on a single market. Where I see SaaS going is actually vertical SaaS, which is building a platform around a specific market. And what that enables you to do is go above and beyond what any other platform can because you are so focused on one market. You can customize it. You can enable them to do things they just cannot do with any other platform. So you, know, you mentioned Salesforce, you mentioned HubSpot, great platforms. We use Salesforce. Uh, but we're a B2B business. They're really not designed for consumer-based businesses, which events are designed uh, to target. So uh, Salesforce, HubSpot, very few um, of our prospects actually use these platforms because one, designed for B2B, but also you know, with HubSpot um, and, 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 and Salesforce as well, you need to invest a lot in the implementation of these products. You need, like we've got a full-time Salesforce person, for example, and that's all they do. So you need... The ability to implement it and you need the ability to support it our product is ready to go out of the box designed for them at their price point and and that's what we focus on so yeah mailchimp is one example a lot of people are using mailchimp uh they're increasing their prices um it's a really expensive product it's designed for e-commerce not designed for events and so that's probably a platform that uh we're taking away um, a number of customers from and, and we see a number of event promoters and venues moving from mailchimp audience republic just because we are designed specifically for them do you eventually so you're at a 50 million 51 million dollar valuation now when you're at a two three half a billion dollar valuation if you continue this current trajectory where do you see that battlefield coming from where is your threat is your threat from mr yum starting to offer services that you guys do and going hey some restaurants Mm. also do events Mm. we're gonna offer what audience republic do Mm. or do you see um, Mailchimp potentially stepping up their game because I think the mm. fact that they are, I don't know, I just don't feel like they've innovated too much. No, not um, at all. So, so where where is your threat? Where is your battlefield? Because eventually mm. you're going to get a target on your head once mm. you once your valuation gets big enough. Yeah, where's well, that going to come from? I feel like the target is already there in a way. You know, like I remember when we first learned about Audience Republic, we were like, oh my god, this is brilliant. But it just takes one big business to come in and eat it up and the the threat I think was there from the start because it's such a genius idea. Yeah, I think what you learn running a startup is your biggest problems don't actually come from competition and the market is big enough to support a number of different players. Your biggest challenges actually come from internal issues and you actually executing. And so yes, I'm sure that potentially could be a problem in the future. And I think there's some great, uh, there's some great products out there. And it's always a, a challenge for us competing against these platforms who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and ensuring that we have not only the same features as them, but better features. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think our focus is really about the more uh, horizontal platforms that are industry agnostic, really making sure that we deliver the same value in terms of feature set as them, but go above and beyond. But really, you know, our problems as a as a you know a startup it always comes from internal challenges it doesn't generally come from competitors or external challenges we've got enough to worry about as it is 
Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it too. And I think like when you do have competitors, it just makes you better. Hundred you know, like percent. We we can say the same thing with our business for sure. But you know, looking at your team, looking at you know, you said you had like a full time Salesforce person. That's so interesting to me. But you were very public about how you had to downsize 100%. during COVID. Yeah, like I, um, yeah, I read that you had to let go of a bunch of people. What was that like? Did you? And also, did you bring those people back into the fold? Um, post? I don't, are we post COVID? Would you say we're post COVID? Bloody better be. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Elton John's <laughs> in the country, festivals are <laughs> happening, laneways coming up. It feels like we're post-COVID. But, um, yeah, have you replaced those roles? Oh, for sure. And and then so, but look, yeah, going back to that COVID, you know, that March 2020 is etched into, you know, everyone's brains and, and that was a terrible time for everyone. Um, you know, I, I spent all of 2019 building the team. That was my core focus. I was going to LA every month. London every second month. I got to the end of 2019. I was exhausted, but my focus was building a team. I hired all these incredible people. Um, and then March 2020 happened and we had to make some pretty tough decisions. And uh, part of that was downsizing the team. And so I think we're sitting at about 30 people back then. We ended up downsizing to about 15, so about half the team. And that was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do because these people are doing such a great job it's through no fault of their own, but really we had no choice. We had to get through the pandemic and really get to that point of profitability. And we did that all throughout the pandemic. Uh, for those two years, we were actually profitable the entire time. And so we left that pandemic with uh, the same amount of money in the bank as what we did uh, when we started. And we just focused on product. Uh, you know, we had a few choices to make. Do we pivot and go into live streaming like everybody else did? Do we go and do other things. And what we knew is events would come back. It was just a matter of time. And so we spent the whole time in the pandemic uh, building the product and making it better. And we came out of the product, out of the pandemic with a much better product. And uh, that's really helped us uh, today. So it was a bit of a luxury because you don't often have that, um, you know, that, that time to actually just focus on product. So um, yeah, very challenging time, but there were a lot of positives that came out of it as well. Yeah. I'm always so interested, and this is probably a sensitive topic that maybe we can't talk about, but I'm always interested in how companies let staff go, especially when it's on a larger scale. Like I would say 15 people is, you know, maybe not a huge scale like a Facebook or a Google, but it's still a process that you have to think about, right? So how did you do that? They're all in different countries. Did you go and do one-on-ones? Is it Zoom? Well, yeah, we couldn't couldn't even meet people in person, right? be there. How did that work? Holy. So, um, yeah, it was something that we thought a lot to do it in the right way especially you know, a challenging thing to have to do when people are doing an incredible job. Uh, you know, you have a great relationship with them and um, yeah, you have to make a really tough decision. So we met with all of them individually and it was over Zoom because we had no way of doing it in person. Uh, you know, either they were in a different country or a different city or even in Sydney, uh, you know, we weren't able to meet in person either. And so uh, it was a really challenging day. We did it all in one day and um yeah, it was uh, probably the lo- one of the longest days I've, I've uh, ever had, that's for sure. I love that you did one-on-ones, though. I think oh, that's for important. Sure. Yeah, yeah, you have to, 100%. Yeah, very cool. And then I guess what did you learn about live-streamed events during the pandemic? You know, we're still in the, the COVID chat, so, yeah. yeah, what did you learn? Well, there was a lot of excitement around live-streaming during the pandemic. Everyone thought it was going to be the next <laughs> big thing, and uh, there was a lot of live-streaming happening Interestingly, at the start of the pandemic, artists were not interested in charging for live streams at all. They, you know, as artists, are, are very reluctant to charge for anything that isn't a 
you know, album or merch. And so to do a live stream, they really were against it to start off with. We started doing, you know, a, a little bit of live streaming just to test the waters. Um, and uh, we did we did one live stream event and I think there was about 200,000 uh, registrations for that. And I think there was about 4 million viewers over, over, over the space of a week. Um, and that got us really excited. Um, and so we started doing a little bit more of that. But as we dug into it and as we saw how much revenue some of these events were making from live streaming. Uh, we looked into it and just thought, look, people aren't going to be watching live music uh, when events come back on, on, on live streaming and uh, really just directed our focus back into our core problem, which was helping live events uh, sell more tickets. And then have you noticed anything with consumer confidence? That seems to be a big buzzword around live events and COVID. You know, did you notice that consumer confidence did take a hit with people coming back and buying event tickets? And that was one of the things that Chuggy was talking about, actually. Hey, Luke. Mm. Um, yeah, like buying tickets late and everything like that. In terms of now or during that kind of pandemic period? I Well, let's compare the two. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What, during the pandemic period, what was consumer confidence like? And how, do you feel like that's made a shift and it's come back? Yeah, well, look, every country was different. You know, we've got uh, we've got events in Australia, New Zealand. We've got events in the US, Canada, Europe, and to be honest, it was all fluctuating at different times during the pandemic. You know, at one point, Australia was doing really well, and people, as we we're coming out of the pandemic, were just buying whatever ticket they possibly could because they just wanted to get out of the house. They'd watched everything on Netflix, and they wanted to do something different. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you know, Australia then had that kind of lockdown towards the end of 2021, and then the US was just going incredibly crazy and and huge amount of tickets being sold. Fast forward to you know last year and and this year, what we're seeing is Big events doing really well. If you are Harry Styles, you are selling out no matter no matter where you are. Uh, the more kind of medium events, um, they either are you know, doing really well or they're struggling. Um, and the smaller events, um, the same thing as well. Uh, with music festivals, we're noticing that multi-genre multi-genre music festivals are struggling versus single genre music festivals are actually doing really strongly. Um, so yeah, interesting to see how the market's kind of uh, uh, trending. But look, people are buying as many tickets as ever. Um, I think the great thing about the live music market is yeah, when, when, when times are good, people want to have fun. And when times are bad, people want to escape. And so uh, I know I was running my music events in, in 2008 uh, during that recession period. And, and that was one of the most vibrant times when it came to the most music festivals, the most music events, and and, uh, and uh, a lot of things were happening back then. So uh, there's a lot of talk about upcoming recessions in the second half of this year. And, and look, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, music is generally looked at a, a cheaper alternative to more expensive things like travel and, and things like that. So we're really excited for, for 2023. People are buying as many tickets as ever. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited for the year. Yeah, music feeds the soul. Even 100%. if we do go into a full-blown recession, people are going to need that as a form of 100%. escape. Yeah. Do you... Is there a weird correlation between if a festival is struggling that you kind of make more money from them as a client in terms of, let, and let me um, let me explain what I mean by that. You've got a festival that's doing well. They might buy a 10 grand package of you, 20 grand package of you, whatever. They, they run their systems. Festival sells out. No worries. Another client who might be like, oh, I don't know if I need Audience Republic or yep. I'll just do a $1,000 budget or whatever. Suddenly their festival's not working. Do they come back to you and go, all right, fuck, we, we, we need your help? And so you actually see more revenue out of the festivals that are less successful than the ones that are? So the great thing about the SaaS model is 
it's we're not taking any commissions or percentages or anything like that. It is the same whether uh, whether or not uh, you know they're really struggling or, or not. And uh, what we find is our platform, you know, people who need help selling more tickets, um, you know, it's a great fit for. But also those events that you know we're going to sell out, uh, it's even more effective for those because uh, they can use these high demand events to build audiences that they own. So then they can then utilize that to drive sales of the other events that might be maybe more struggling. But to answer your question, the fee is exactly the same, whether they're you know, struggling or, or not so much. So how, how do you charge? Explain yeah, so uh, our product, uh, it's a SaaS model. And so we charge an annual subscription fee uh, based on the number of contacts. There's a few different plans. Uh, so we have email marketing, we have SMS, we have advertising capabilities, segmentation, reporting, uh, insights, and we also have our gamified incentive uh, process called the campaigns platform, which is all about pre-sale registrations and leveraging key moments to really amplify announcements like pre-sales and, and lineup announcements to build up an audience that they own to help them sell more tickets, both on, on the pre-sale, but also the general on sale. Um, and so that's our product. Uh, so we charge an annual subscription fee based on the number of contacts. If they want the campaigns platform, uh, we charge on a per event basis per year on top of that. Jared, how big can how big can Audience Republic get? What's the addressable market? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that we get really excited by. The digger we deep into this, the big, the more we dig into this market, the bigger it, it, it gets and the bigger we discover it. Um, there is a ton of independent promoters out there. There is a ton of independent venues out there. Um, and our focus right now is music, uh, but also there's a ton of other types of events as well that we're working with that are outside of music as well. Sport is a big market uh, for us, which we will be going into more and more, um, as well as other segments. Um, so yeah, music is very much a core segment, but uh, adjacent to that are a number of others. You'd In do the- comedy with Live Nation too, wouldn't you? Uh, I, I will have to, I'm not as close to the sales process as what I used to. So I have to check on that, but comedy is definitely something that we do for sure. And we've had a lot of success with comedy. We also work directly with artist managers as well, um, directly with the artists, whether they have an event or not. Artists use our platform to help store their audience. Um, they use our email marketing platform, our SMS platform, and there's a number of other artist specific features around, uh, releases and things like that. Album launches. So artists use our platform. Uh, as well as talent agents. Um, so those are the two kind of additional adjacent segments that we're focused on inside music. So given the fact that there is a big addressable market out there, how are you thinking about an exit? Are you looking at IPO? Like what are your dreams? IPO, do you think there'll be a bidding war between Live Nation and TEG? Like where where do you see this company going when it's mature enough to be sold or blissed? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there is no exit goal. Uh, I mean, the the dream is, to be honest, what we're doing right now. I mean, every day we are building a product that we love. We are thinking about event promoters. We are thinking about artists. We are thinking about venues every single day. So we're not focused on an exit event. Um, It's really about building a sustainable business. We are very capital efficient. We're not one of these businesses that raises a ton of money and wastes money. Uh, You know, we're so focused on solving this problem. Um, I could be doing this for another 10 years, 20 years. I, I don't have a timeline on an exit event or, 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 or anything like that. It's just about building the biggest business we possibly can and, and adding the, the most value we possibly can. That's an awesome PR answer. But <laughs> what, what questions, like what conversations are you having? Because I imagine you're going to talk, and I know these guys, right? You go and talk to these big players about onboarding them as a client. They become your client. They're spending with you. And then you're also raising money. So are your clients also your investors? And then are there conversations about 
you know, potential exits or increasing their position. And like, what what is that dynamic like mm, between mm. people on your cap table who are also your clients? Yeah. So generally we don't uh, raise money from our clients. Our focus is raising money from technology investors. Uh, mm. Our team have fantastic connections in the space. They have great domain expertise when it comes to music and events and things like that. Really the biggest challenges we face as a technology business are scaling a technology business, technical problems, go-to-market problems, all that sort of stuff. So our investors are all technology investors. Uh, they've invested in technology businesses, they've scaled technology businesses, um, and they've been there and done it before. And, and so that's that's our that's our cap table. Um, but yeah, we're not really- you So you don't have any, you don't have- People like TG or Mushroom or any of these guys as angel checks in the business. So we, yeah, we don't we don't raise money from uh, typically from our customers. Yeah, okay. So do you have any music industry people on your cap table? Um, at this time, I'll have to think back to the cap table. I think we, yeah, we definitely have people who have experience in the music industry. For example, we actually have a number of. Uh, early Spotify employees, for example, who were there in the early days building Spotify. So they, they still have a connection to the technology in industry, uh, like uh, uh, like Nick Engel, for example, who uh, was very early on at, at Spotify. That's genius too, because you were talking before about how it's hard to get investors onto music, and then you there's your crossover. It's music yes. tech. You know, they're yes. the ones that get it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, you mentioned your technical co-founder who came over from Gamers Group. Um, that is the biggest. That is always the biggest challenge for somebody starting a business who is not technical themselves and they want to raise money. And everyone they try to raise money from, they're like, "Well, you don't know how to build, and you don't have a technical co-founder, so I'm not investing." And then they can't. They can't convince somebody technical to come yeah. on board. How did you? find a technical co-founder and what inspired him to be involved? How did you meet him? How did you convince him? Talk about that. Yeah. So I was going through a uh, accelerator program called Slingshot and uh, effectively they gave you some cash and uh, took you through a process around getting your business um, investor ready. Um, and Jason McLulich was doing a separate business as part of that accelerator. Um, and what he learned through that process is he doesn't want to be a CEO um, and uh, got to the end of that accelerator process. And he actually came up to me and said, look, uh, I, I, I really just hate this CEO thing. I, I, I just want to be coding is, is that's what I love. That's what I want to be doing. I know that you need a CTO. What about, you know, if I was your CTO and um, I said, I'll think about it. Uh, SQL inside though. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and so uh, he's been with the business ever since and he's done an incredible job. Um, he is one of those uh, people who has that technical expertise, but he can explain it in such a simple way. And so he's been uh, instrumental in building our technology platform and, and scaling our product to, to where it is today. So, yeah, no, um, I probably don't have any insights around helping somebody else find someone <laughs> because he, he uh, approached me. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's been great. But it's a really important thing, I think, as a technology business to have a technical co-founder. Otherwise, uh, it makes things pretty much impossible. Well, the insight for me there is that you took a chance on an accelerator, you know, so that helps you network into that sort of scenario, which is super interesting. Um, you mentioned you were profitable. Are you still profitable as a business? So we were, um, but we're now at a point we, we are really ramping up. Um, yeah. And so we're expecting to hire another 40 hires this year. So we expect to be about 80 people by the end of the year. Um, so we are ramping up. And as part of that, we are starting to uh, invest 
capital and go to market in terms of engineering, in terms of product. And so we're going back into that uh, uh, growth mode um, after the capital raise that we did. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about the year. But the way I run the business is we are very capital efficient. We can get to profitability at any point by just tapering off our hiring plans. Mm, that's really interesting. And that makes yourself like if there is this recession, which is hard and um, which is harder than we expect and you can't raise money, when are you looking to raise next? Look, we have no timeline. Uh, yeah. You know, we are not dependent on outside funding. Um, you know, we expect to raise money in the future, but we don't depend on it. And so we run the business like the, the last round will be the last money we ever get. Um, but at the same time, because we've been so capital efficient our entire existence, uh, we've actually been receiving more inbound than we ever have from some of the top investors uh, in the world. Um, and so keeping those relationships, we're not raising right now, but um, our focus is just building a business that uh, is capital efficient, high growth that investors want to invest in, particularly uh, where there's so many other SaaS businesses out there who just losing tons of money they're maybe not delivering a huge amount of value and they're super inefficient in, in what they do jared i've been watching you since the very start of audience republic i think and i'm super proud of what you've built i'm like pumped about it i'm inspired by it you should be super proud of yourself and so should your team can um, i ask one last question yeah go for okay. it okay so have you ever thought about going back to Mastercraft and going, look, I'm not going to lose 20K this time. Give me another <laughs> shot. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, look, I don't know where Mastercraft is yeah, these days, but uh, I have no idea. But uh, look, I, uh, uh, I think, to be honest, running music events is more stressful than what I'm doing now. Um, and I would never, ever want to be in that position again, <laughs> putting out my entire life savings and not knowing if you're ever going to get that money back. So I'm going to leave that to the professionals. I'm not going to be doing that again. I think I'm going to be focused on helping them and, and uh, helping them unlock their full potential as an event promoter and helping them sell more tickets. But uh, I never want to play that game ever again, that's for sure. It, ex <laughs> it explains why every promoter you meet is always a little bit crazy. Like <laughs> You it have is, to be. You have to be for that job. It is like the most... I, I always used to say, and I still do, I say management in the music industry is the hardest job in the music industry, being an artist manager. But that's probably a lie. I would probably say promoter. I mean, mm. maybe maybe the skill um, is more... I don't, I don't say promoter as much because the skill is a lot more niche. It's like it's very narrow. The reason why management is so hard is you can get fired at any minute. You've got to be an expert on a million different things. It's fucking chaotic. That's why I champion that. But I guess in terms of the stress level... The hardest, the the hardest thing is you've got one shot um, yeah. and you've got this narrow window. Everything has to work perfectly. At the same time, you're putting up all this capital. You don't know if you're going to ever get it back again. Um, and so just that stress, refreshing your ticket sales every three minutes and not knowing if you're going to lose it all or you know, make money and just that you know narrow line between success or failure... Um, that is just so stressful. So And the stress of a vocal community, you yes. know, like with a manager, your artist can be annoyed at you, but it's probably over email or a passive aggressive text. You're a promoter, you've got a Facebook group that's been started against you. Hundred percent. And I think I think uh, I think these event promoters, you know, there's I think I think not that much appreciation out there in terms of just how much risk they're taking, how much they're they're really contributing. Um, but uh, they also at the same time, when things don't go well, get a lot of negativity as well. So yeah, it's um it's a it's a tough game, that's for sure. As a promoter, you can have three good years in a row. You can make a million dollars each year. You are a millionaire, you are loving your life, you are king of the world. And then the fourth year might go bad and you might lose three million dollars and you're back to square one. 
Yes, it's I, fucking, I had it's fucking scroll. mental. I had one promoter once. I was telling a story about how I lost twenty thousand dollars in one night, and he said, "Jared, that's nothing. Talk to me when you get to losing one million dollars in one night. Then, then, then come back to me. <laughs> come back to me with your sob story. Then, yeah. exactly. Jared, exactly. you're a legend. Um, I can't wait to see you hit your milestones as you go, and um, I look forward to seeing you as a unicorn founder one day. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks so much. Ooh.